I do want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians and locate chapter 15. I think it's page 559 if you're using one of the Bibles from the Connect Desk out in the lobby. Uh, so if, you, if you're regular at Crossridge, you know that we've been spending our time studying the Gospel of John together. We're going to take a little break from the Gospel of John. Uh, Easter is coming up. Easter Sunday, in fact, is just two weeks away. And what our culture refers to as Easter Sunday, we refer to as Resurrection Sunday. At the heart of Easter is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to spend the next five weeks actually exploring 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just have to say that as we start this series on the resurrection, a preacher coming to a topic like the resurrection is a bit like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Uh, There's so much material, it's hard to know where to begin. But I think 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to begin, and we're going to spend five weeks together exploring this great chapter that is all about the resurrection. As you have it in front of you, you'll notice it's a long chapter. It's 58 verses long, and it has a lot to teach us about the resurrection. Uh, Each of the four gospel accounts gives us eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. But 1 Corinthians 15 is actually the most thorough treatment of the resurrection and its implications for our lives that we find anywhere in the New Testament. So we entitled this series, Resurrection, and the subtitle is The Death of Death and the Hope of Life. And I chose that title because the movement in this chapter is from the resurrection of Jesus, where death was defeated, to our own resurrection, and that is the hope of life. So this morning we're beginning this series with a look at verses 1 to 11 of this great chapter. This is God's Word, and this is what it says to us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being Saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believed." Well, this passage begins with a basic outline of the gospel. It begins with a declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you've been around Crossridge for any length of time, then you know that this is something that we celebrate regularly, not just on Easter Sunday. Uh, We sang songs about the resurrection this morning, songs that are filled with that kind of hope. We, We sing songs like that regularly. One of the songs we sing around here is Living Hope. We sing words like, then came the morning that sealed the promise, your buried body began to breathe. 
Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. It's that same movement from the resurrection of Jesus to our future resurrection. So we sing songs that celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on a regular basis. There are lots of songs, lots of hymns that celebrate this fact. There's an older hymn that we don't sing a lot anymore entitled, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. That hymn is a declaration of what is at the heart of the Christian faith, which is why I was uh, startled or curious at least to read an article in the Globe and Mail a number of years ago about Toronto's West Hill United Church and their plans for their Easter service. That traditional hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, has been a staple of their Easter celebration for years. They love that hymn, but they decided it was time to update the lyrics. So now instead of singing, Christ the Lord is risen today, they sing, Glorious Hope is risen today. Their minister, Greta Vosper, said the lyrical change was an expression of the renewal and optimism of the human spirit. So in her mind, Easter is all about the birth of spring and the bursting forth of tulips and the hope that fills everyone at this time of year. Those are the things to get excited about. She actually wrote a book entitled, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe. So is it? Can we take the traditional message of Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and replace it with a symbolic message about the triumph of the human spirit? Is the way we live more important than what we believe? Now, if you actually stop to investigate or think about that question, what you will find is that you can't actually separate what we believe from the way that we live. Because what we really believe, like deep down in the core of our being, is what comes out in the way that we live. It dictates how we live. And you can see from even a quick reading of this passage, and especially a reading of this entire chapter, that it takes a very different view than the one espoused by Greta Vosper. Instead of saying that the way we live is more important than what we believe, this chapter will go on to say things like, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In fact, this passage will go on to tell us that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen and we foolishly lived as if it did, then we're to be pitied above all people. I mean, all of that self-sacrifice, all of that denying ourselves, all of that investing in eternity, all of that restraining of our physical desires is an utter waste of time and a complete waste of life. So as we begin this exploration of the resurrection, the first thing we need to understand is that there is no gospel without the death and resurrection of Jesus. That word gospel simply means good news. There is no good news if this did not happen. So Paul starts out in verse 1 by reminding us that the issue of the resurrection is not some sort of secondary issue. This is not a discussion of the finer points of theology. This is not a discussion about matters of our conscience. What is at stake in these verses is the gospel itself. And notice verse 1 again. Now I would remind you, brothers or brothers and sisters, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then he goes on to say this in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul is going back to the absolute bedrock of the Christian faith. He says, he delivered to them what was of first importance. Namely, that Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life. Any gospel that does not include the death and resurrection of Jesus is not the gospel. It is not good news. The death and resurrection of Jesus occupied the place of first importance in the Christian faith. Now, there are lots of different ways. We might be tempted to sum up the essence of the Christian faith. Some people might try to sum up the essence of the Christian faith as a way of life. Christians are people who try to live a certain way. They're people who try to follow the example of Jesus. Others might try to sum up the essence of the Christian faith as loving your neighbor or trying to bring justice and peace to the world. And I would just say that the emphasis on the life and teachings of Jesus, as important as those things are, and the neglect of the death and resurrection of Jesus is a hallmark of progressive Christianity. Jesus, as our example, without Jesus as our Savior, is no gospel at all. Here's how Michael Green, a one-time bishop in the Anglican Church, put it. He said, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of the belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would have never begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a wet firework at his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, and you have disposed of Christianity. See, that's how important this doctrine is to our faith. It is central. If you know your history, then you will know that the Battle of Waterloo is one, it was one of the most important military battles ever fought. It was that battle that took place on June 18, 1815, that brought about the end to Napoleon's efforts to dominate Europe. The world would be a very different place had that war not been won. And historians tell us that there was one particular site in the Battle of Waterloo which was regarded by both Wellington, the British commander, and Napoleon, the French commander, as being crucial to the war. Eventually, the British won the war. That victory was largely hinged on the fact that Wellington understood just how vital it was to take that piece of territory. That was the strategic piece to own. With it, there was victory. Without it, there was only certain defeat. The resurrection of Jesus is like that piece of territory that was fought over all those years ago. Take it away and you have nothing left. You have a very different world. Paul says that this is the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Take away the resurrection, you have no firm ground to stand on. Take away the resurrection and you're, there's nothing to save you. There's no one who can save you. 
And just notice that Paul highlights both the past and the present of this, right? This is the gospel you believe. This is the gospel in which you stand. And this is the gospel by which you are being saved. That's why we say that the significance of Easter is not just that Jesus was raised, but that Jesus is risen. So we have a couple baptisms happening here on Easter Sunday again. Uh, One of the passages that we cite when we do baptisms is this one from Romans chapter 10. And there it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that's not a magic formula. It's not like get the wording right and you're good. But it does summarize what you need to believe in order to be a a, a Christian. You need to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. There is no gospel without the death and resurrection of Jesus. The second thing we see here is that the resurrection of Jesus can be verified in several ways. And I just want to take a couple of moments just to to remind you that the Christian gospel is rooted in history. This is important for us to understand. This is actually one of the distinguishing features of the Christian faith. It's connection to events that happened in history. So I don't know how many of you have had had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to read the Koran, for instance, but what you will find in there is almost no reference to history. There's no mention of historical people outside of the prophets. There's no mention of historical places or specific time periods. In fact, it could have been written in any one of a number of different centuries. And that's actually true with regard to most religious writings. But the Christian faith is anchored in history. It's rooted in the events that took place in what we now call the first century. So listen to the way the Gospel of Luke begins. Luke begins like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes as an investigative reporter. He cares about details. He cares about accuracy. He wants to make sure that he has this account straight. And then after that introduction, the very next verse in Luke says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of of Abijah. So Luke doesn't begin his gospel by saying, Once upon a time in a land far, far away, He begins his gospel in the days of Herod, king of Judea. He anchors his gospel in the record of history. And this is something we shouldn't lose sight of. Our faith is rooted in history. You know, there's a a reference in many of the church's early creeds that would be easy to, to miss or overlook. 
Now, the creeds themselves aren't in the Bible, but their ideas are. And one of the creeds you might be familiar with is the Apostles' Creed. We still recite it from time to time around here. Part of that creed says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. Lots of good theology in that creed. There's a creed that's a little bit earlier than that one. It's the Nicene Creed. It says something very similar. Here's what it says about Jesus. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never again. Never end. Again, lots of important doctrine, theological truth in there. Everything about Christ's incarnation, his conception, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. But there's this curious reference to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was the, Ro- was the governor of the Roman province of Judea at the time of Jesus' death. And it's curious that he should be mentioned in the historic creeds of the Christian church at all. But his inclusion is a reminder of the historic, historical nature of our faith. The Apostle Peter would go on to say this in one of his letters. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What Peter is saying is, look, we didn't follow some, you know, mythical stories or just urban legends. We saw this. This happened. So if the resurrection is that important, if it is as important as I say it is, if the entire Christian faith hinges on whether or not these events actually took place, then we ought to have some evidence that that they did take place. It's actually the nature of Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all the historical evidences of Jesus' resurrection, but Paul traces his argument along three main lines. The first one is the witness of the Old Testament. The first thing Paul points to is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So Paul uses this repeated phrase in verses 3 and 4. You probably heard it when I read it or you're familiar with it. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That little phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, when Paul uses it, what he's doing is he's pointing back to what was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, this is not a case of circular reasoning. This is not simply saying, well, the resurrection happened because the Bible says it happened. What Paul is actually arguing here is, look, there are all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. They are hundreds, some of them thousands of years before Jesus came. They all predicted exactly what would happen. Paul is saying that we need to see that the death and resurrection of Jesus were part of God's plan from the beginning of time and that he made this known through his word. 
So here's one example from Psalm 16, a psalm written by or for King David more than a thousand years before the coming of Jesus. There the psalmist said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now on the day of Pentecost, at the birth of the church, the Apostle Peter preached a sermon where he explained that verse. And here's what he said. He said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried... And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, Sheol, the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Listen to this account of Jesus' resurrection from the Gospel of Luke, this account where these two women go to the tomb early on that Sunday morning. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood beside them in in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now it's interesting that when the angels see these two women, they don't try to convince them of Jesus' resurrection based on the physical evidence before them, the empty tomb and the grave clothes. Instead, they try to convince them, or they convince them on the basis of what Jesus said was going to happen. Their point was not, look at the empty tomb, look at the grave clothes, but remember what Jesus said about what the Old Testament taught would happen with the Messiah. And then later, as Jesus talks to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, he's going to tell them that all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, predicted not just the coming of the Messiah, but his death and resurrection. And that these predictions and prophecies occurred hundreds of years before he came. Here's what Jesus said. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the resurrection of Jesus was part of God's master plan from the beginning. And we could have known about it by reading the Old Testament. Second piece of evidence Paul cites is the eyewitnesses. So Paul's second line of reasoning is the eyewitness testimonies of those who encountered the resurrected Jesus. This is what he says in verses 5 and following. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So Paul points to specific individuals. He names names. He points to these individuals who were known to many, Cephas or Peter, the twelve disciples, James, who was Jesus' half-brother, who at one point didn't believe Jesus was anyone special. The larger group of Jesus' followers, known as the apostles, and then a group of more than 500 people that he appeared to at one time. And Paul's point was, 
If you have doubts about this, if you doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead, there are more than 500 witnesses that you can go and ask. Now, in one sense, that doesn't help us today because we could say, well, look, they're all dead now. We can't go ask them. But you just have to get inside Paul's mind and understand the basis of his argument. His, his argument was, at the time that he wrote this letter, look, there are more than 500 people you can go and talk to, and they can verify the resurrection of Jesus. That's what made his argument so compelling. This is similar to the way Paul argued when he was brought before one of the rulers of his day. As he was awaiting trial, listen to what he said. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. What's his point? His point is that everything that happened in Jesus' life was a matter of public record. His miracles were performed before large crowds. His crucifixion was a public event, as crucifixions were. His resurrection appearances happened to multiple people in multiple places. There were plenty of witnesses who could verify it. And this is actually what the apostles proclaimed as they went about preaching in the ancient world. Here's a sampling of their preaching from Acts chapter 10. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That word witnesses is one of the most common words in the book of Acts. One of the most repeated words in the book of Acts. Their preaching was based on what they had seen. And what they had seen was Jesus raised from the dead. And I think we need to remember that as we think about those individuals, that those who testified or bore witness to the fact that Jesus was alive had nothing to gain from falsifying stories about it. Paul points specifically to Jesus' disciples, and what we know from history is that most of Jesus' disciples died a martyr's death because they testified that Jesus was alive. As one writer said, men may die for a conviction, but men will not die for a concoction. See, people will die for what they believe in, even if they end up being wrong, but they will not die for what they know to be false. Before his death, Thomas Arnold was a professor at Oxford University, and here's what he had to say about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. He said, thousands and tens of thousands have gone through the evidence which attests the resurrection of Christ piece by piece, as carefully as ever a judge summed up on the most important case. I have done it myself many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence 
of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fitter evidence of every kind than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose from the dead. So there is the evidence of the Old Testament. There's the evidence of the eyewitnesses. The third piece of evidence that Paul cites is his own personal experience of being transformed by an encounter with Jesus. So the third piece is the testimony of those transformed by an encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, Paul talks about his own experience here in this passage. Here's what he says in verses 8 to 10. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul did not set out to be an apostle. He did not set out to be a leader in the church. We read about his conversion story in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts records what happened in the early church and how it was that it went from a handful of followers of Jesus to being a force that swept across the world. Acts chapter 7 records the story of Stephen. He was known as the first of the Christian martyrs. He was put to death for testifying that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's how Acts chapter 7 ends. And then Acts chapter 8 begins like this. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is what Paul was like persecuted the church fiercely. Acts chapter 9 begins in a similar way. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is the story of Saul's conversion. This is the story of how Saul became Paul. Now, None of us can duplicate the, ex- the, the exact experience of Paul. None of us have the, the shining light and the voice from heaven that we can say, this happened to me. But for the past 2,000 years, countless people have been transformed by an encounter with the risen Jesus. Look, I have my own story. You have your story. As a pastor, I've been able to witness many more of those stories, lives forever changed because of an encounter with Jesus. In the past decade, I've had the opportunity to teach in different parts of the world. And while the particulars of an individual's story might differ, the underlying narrative of being changed from an encounter with Jesus remains the same. I've met with former radical Muslims who are now preaching the gospel under the threat of death all over North Africa. 
I've had an opportunity to work with a former witch doctor in Cuba who used to rob graves, used to consult with the dead, now proclaiming the gospel. A few years back, I spent time in China with many men and women who were raised as ardent atheists, but who are now followers of Jesus, proclaiming, testifying to their encounter with him. And what all of those stories have in common is that they had an encounter with Jesus that changed them forever. So I don't want to steal too much from next week, but Paul will go on to say in this chapter that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. People will sometimes say things like, well, you know, what's really important is just that you have faith. As long as you believe in something. It's a nice sentiment, but it actually depends what your faith is in. What's the point of believing in a dead Savior? When I think about that, I think about a little-known but highly influential play entitled Waiting for Godot. The play is minimalist and its presentation is just two men on a stage talking to each other. They're waiting for Godot to arrive and to occupy the time they eat, they sleep, they converse, they play games, they sing, they exercise, they swap hats, they contemplate suicide. They do all of this while they're waiting for this character, Godot, to arrive. But he never arrives. And the interpretation of the play is that Godot stands for God. The play is sort of a parable of the futility of waiting for God to show up. He never arrives because we've simply made him up. That's the idea behind it. Look, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then that would describe our situation perfectly. We're just waiting for Godot. Jesus taught some important things, but he can't really do anything to save us. It's not what this passage tells us. What this passage tells us is that this gospel is the thing in which we stand. It's this gospel by which we are being saved because it's not just that Christ was raised, but that Christ is risen. Our faith is rooted in a historical reality. In verse 20 of this chapter, we'll go on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What that verse is telling us, it's telling us about the death of death, that Jesus has conquered the grave, and that because he has conquered the grave, he's the first fruits, we in our turn will be raised as well. That's why the doctrine of the resurrection is so important because it means the death of death and because it offers us the hope of life. And I would just say that whatever we are facing, if we know the resurrection of truth, if we know that Jesus has conquered the grave, if we know that we will be resurrected and be with him, it allows us to face whatever we face in life because we have hope beyond this life. My prayer as we spend this time in this series is that our hearts are stirred with the idea, with the the truth that we will one day be in the presence of God forever and that there's nothing in this life that can take that away from us. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your grace that has been shown among us. We want to thank you for the truth that we cling to. And Lord, there are many days where there are things that we encounter that we wonder why is this happening or why is... That happening, why is there death at all? 
And Lord, our hope is in something solid. It's in the fact that you raised Jesus from the dead and that you have promised us that if we are united with him by faith, that we too will be raised with him. So God, we put our hope in that and we pray that will change the way that we live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.